This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This week's episode of For Real is sponsored by TBR, Book Riot's subscription service offering reading recommendations personalized to your reading life, which makes a great gift for the holidays for the reader on your list. Tell TBR about your reading likes and dislikes, what you're looking for, and then sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email, so there's an option for every budget. Give your bibliologist feedback, update your requests to stay in line with your reading goals and expanding horizons, and basically just have your own personal book concierge, which is awesome. TBR is also available as a gift for the holidays. Select the plan you want to give, and you can schedule the gift to be delivered any day that you want. But get your gifts fast because spots are limited this holiday season. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today or start your holiday shopping. That's mytbr.co. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. We're recording on Saturday, October 23rd. Hello, Alice. How are you today? I'm getting by. How are you? <laughs> I too am getting by, but I'm excited that today is Readathon Day. So uh, once we get done recording, I have no obligations except to sit with some books. So I'm excited about that. Now, I know that the readathon started at 7 a.m. Central Time. So, I did, yes. Did you start reading already or no? I read for a little while this morning. Actually, some of the books we're going to talk about <laughs> later in the podcast. So I got about nice. like an hour and a half-ish of reading in, but it was pretty casual because I was also like having breakfast and doing some podcast prep, and I'm not really going to sit down and like settle until a little bit later. Hour and a half is pretty good. Yeah, not too bad. How about you? Um, I have done no reading thus far today <laughs> uh, at uh, 11 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> totally fine. And, totally fine. But I think I told you. Uh, so I try to once a year book a hotel room in my – like do a staycation. And I couldn't do it last year because safety. Um, mm -hmm. It feels a little more safe this year. So I booked one for today and ostensibly it's for the readathon. But again, I I'm not trying super hard. <laughs> Because it's, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. for those unaware, it's the 24-hour readathon, which means you would have started at 7 a.m. Central and then continued reading nonstop until tomorrow at 7 a.m., which is quite, quite a feat. Yes. So if you at least want to try for like 12 hours or something, you probably would have started when it started. But mm -hmm. uh, here we are. I'm going to go in a hotel room. I'm going to sit. I'm going to read. It's going to be so nice. Yes, we also have my it's my grandma's birthday today. So we're going to go over and like do cupcakes and cake and stuff. So we'll miss some time for that. So it is readathon day, but it is like ultra casual readathon day for me. Well, happy birthday to your grandma. Yes, indeed. Happy birthday, grandma. She won't obviously listen to this. But <laughs> that's okay. Maybe she'll like feel the vibes. I hope so. Oh, for those uh, who maybe, I don't know, didn't hear last episode or need a reminder, we have our holiday gift guide episode coming up November 23rd. So if you would like to get your picks sorted out by end of November and put in, like, put in those orders because we're all hearing about the supply chain, 
send us your requests for, you know, like gift guide recommendations. So if you need something for yourself, for a family member, for a friend, just send us some stuff they like and we will tell you uh, some options for them. And email us at forreal at bookriot.com. That is F-O-R-R-E-A-L at bookriot.com by November 15th, which I don't know. What day of the week is that? Do you know, Kim? I think it's a Friday. All right. Do it by then. <laughs> well, no. Now that I said that, I wonder if why would we have picked a Friday? <laughs> it's a Monday. It's a November Monday. November 15th is a Monday. <laughs> so get them in by that Monday. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Very cool. I'm excited about that. That's a fun episode to do every year. Yep. And let's talk real quick about our sponsor, Sips By. Is there anything better than curling up with a new book and a hot cup of tea? Sips By makes discovering tea fun, personalized, and affordable. I, I love all those things. The Sips By box is the only multi-brand personalized tea subscription box. So each month, they match you with delicious teas from over 150 global tea brands, big and small, based on your unique preferences. So you get to really like try a, a true assortment. There are also gift cards and subscriptions available at www.sipsby.com. That's S-I-P-S-B-Y.com. When you subscribe, you receive four new teas each month. And each one includes loose teas, bag teas, or a mixture of both based on your preference and makes 16 or more cups of tea. It accounts for your caffeine tolerance, flavor preference, and dietary needs, which is very exciting. Kim, you enjoy Sips By. I do. I have been a subscriber in the past, uh, and it, it's really cool. So you like go to their website, you take a like quiz where you kind of tell them, this is the stuff I like, this is the stuff I don't, these are flavors I like, these are ones I don't like, I prefer high caffeine, you know, different caffeine tolerances and all of that. And then every month, they send you this box, and it comes with a beautiful like piece of paper that describes each of the four teas that they're sending you, gives you like how caffeine, uh, how much caffeine it has, the different like flavors and stuff that you can get, and then you just get to like explore new teas so which is really fun because you know like if you go to the store or whatever and you buy tea you have to buy like a bunch of um bags or like a whole loose leaf bag and if you don't like it you feel like you have a ton of tea sitting around that doesn't work and so this one's really fun because you get to try a bunch of different stuff and then if you find a flavor that you like they tell you how you can go and buy more which is really cool so um i have been a subscriber i gave this as a gift to a family friend who's also a big tea person and she really liked it too because it's just like a fun surprise and uh, so if you're a tea drinker, it's really cool. Very, very highly recommended. Oh, yeah. So my my household got a box and my wife loves mm-hmm. tea. And so I was showing it to her and I was like, look at this like thing. It's so cute. And she was immediately like, oh, I want to buy this for my friend for Christmas because yeah. she also loves tea. So if you know anyone who does or you're just interested, follow Sips by S-I-P-S-B-Y on Instagram for weekly giveaways and more uh, and for podcast listeners only. So this is you guys. Use the code for real for 50% off your first Sips by box at sipsby.com. So that is the code for real for 50% off. That's pretty cool. It is really cool. That's awesome. Yeah, it's super great. Highly recommended. Uh, and so with that, we will shift gears into our first segment, which is nonfiction in the news. So this week, it's not really like 
I don't know, news news so much as like a cool thing that is happening. Uh, and that I found on uh, Instagram that the author Iwo Jima Oluo, it, the author of So You Want to Talk About Race, is starting a newsletter. I haven't read any. I just subscribed uh, yesterday, and so I haven't gotten one yet, but I think it should be really fascinating. It looks like she's covering a lot of different topics, both about race, but also just like about writing and family, uh, which is really exciting. And it made me think, too, that there's like so many authors are doing really cool email newsletters right now, just about a ton of different topics. And so I like am subscribed to way more than I can possibly read. But two of the ones that I really like that I do like make a point to read every time they come in is uh, one by Heather Cox Richardson. She's a historian who's done a lot of research around like the history of the United States and political history. Her email, Letters from an American, takes current political events and like puts them in historical context, which I have found very um reassuring and sort of perspective giving on like the current political landscape and the changes within different political parties and stuff. So I really like that one. And another one that I subscribe to is Culture Study by Anne Helen Peterson. Um, She is writing a lot about like millennials and work and just like self-care and some of those other things, but in sort of a like the context of capitalism. And so I find hers really fascinating too. And it made me think, are you subscribed to any newsletters by authors, Alice? I am, but now I'm kind of embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> no, please. They're not embarrassed. No, 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 no. Tell me. You're like, I subscribe to this thing talking about the difference between <laughs> political parties and I'm over here. Okay. Um, I am subscribed to two. One, I'm going to count it as authors because they have a book out. It's Trixie and Katya, uh, the famous drag queens. Um, Trixie nice. Mattel, Katya Zamalochkova. They have a newsletter called Gooped, <laughs> and nice. that one, the unpaid one has uh, two things. One is like an advice column issue, and the other is uh, is called Unpaid Spokesperson, and they talk about things that they love for the week. That's so awesome. I really like that. And then I also subscribe to Lindy West's newsletter, which is Movie Recaps, and it's called Butt News. <laughs> I also subscribe to that one. I am not all just like really smart stuff. <laughs> that one's great. I was like, I'm over here with Gooped and Butt News, and you're like, Letters from an American and Culture Study. I also subscribed to Here for It by R. Eric Thomas, which is um, a really funny one, like not super sophisticated either. So I just picked two that make me sound smart, but I'm not really that smart all the time. Uh, So the other piece of news, I guess we'll call it news, that we have. Oh, gosh, I'm just continuing this vein. Whatever. I am leaning into my pop culture love. Do it. The Instagram account Bachelor Data, which has gotten pretty popular in the last couple months uh, because they put out some really fascinating data trends about the show, they just did a a very pretty looking post talking about all of the books that have come out by former Bachelor, Bachelorette, Bachelor in Paradise, etc. contestants. And they said as of let's see, four days ago, so October 19th, there were 28 books that had come out so far by Bachelor contestants, which I was like, wow. And the 28th was by Maddie Pruitt, who was on um, Matt James's season, I think. I didn't watch that one. He was on Dancing with the Stars uh, recently, but I believe was kicked off, so. Oh, no. Well, and there's uh, upcoming is uh, Rachel Lindsay, who's the first Black Bachelorette. She has a book called Miss Me With That. It's coming out in 2022, which I'm very excited about. There's just been like, there was a a big lull in Bachelor publishing. And then now I feel like there's a ton (laughs) of them coming out. What? Why are you laughing? (laughs) I just, I 
I don't know. Just reading through the infographic, it's, there's just so there's so many of them. Like, who would have thought? But I guess, like, if there's, like, 25 contestants on every season and they do, like, multiple seasons and multiple, like, variations, it makes sense that, like, a percentage of them would, would write books or have ghostwriters help them write books. I don't know. Oh, I thought you were laughing at me calling it Bachelor Publishing. So that's fine. No. No, I just – it's – I'm just interested. It's, I, I know way more about I know way more about The Bachelor because of you than I would otherwise, and I appreciate. That. Oh, fantastic! The Bachelor it just started up again with Michelle Young, and we saw the first episode, and it was really good. And I'm excited. She's from Minnesota. She is. They talk a lot about Minnesota, and then she's yeah. very good at basketball. Yeah, and also a teacher. She seems very nice. Yeah, she's extremely, like, you see her on TV and you're like, oh, I could be friends with her, which I feel like a lot of the times I feel very, like, cowed by the contestants <laughs> on Bachelor, but she seems extremely down to earth and friendly. So, yeah, I really, I like her as the Bachelorette. Maybe we need to add a reality TV update segment to the podcast <laughs> where we can just talk about things. <laughs> At the very least, a Bachelor thing as it's going on. There are also currently... Two iterations of Drag Race airing on the same night, and I'm not talking wow. about that at all, but it's Canada and UK. Wow. So much. So much TV. All right. Uh, so with that, we're going to switch gears into books, uh, which is the thing we normally we're supposed to be talking about. Oh, yeah. I'll start with new nonfiction, so books that are out recently or coming soon that we're excited about. So my first pick is uh, called The Gilded Page, The Secret Lives of Medieval Manuscripts by Mary Wellesley, which came out uh, October 12th from Basic Books. And this is a real book for nerds, I think. So she is a, a researcher looking at medieval manuscripts and how medieval manuscripts were made and how they have survived based and which ones um, have survived over time. So she, uh, in the book, basically, like, goes through the process of creating a medieval manuscript. So everything from, like, how they made the paper that they are or the, the material that the books are written on to how they're put together to the various people who contribute to a medieval manuscript, like the writers, but then also the people who have, like, transcribed them over time um, and all of that. And then also looks at which kinds of manuscripts have survived from the medieval age to the present that we can actually look at. And it is really just, it is so fascinating. And you can just tell, like, how much she loves what she's doing and the kind of the, like, tone she's taking, which is about medieval manuscripts being sort of collective endeavors and that they're not ever the work of just one person, but that of so many people putting them in together. And so I wanted to just read a paragraph from the introduction because this is the one where I was like, oh, yes, this book is going to be really a delight. So she writes, a medieval manuscript is not only a text, but also a collection of human stories. Each manuscript has been made by many different hands and has passed through many different hands throughout its history. Each one bears the traces of the people who fashioned it and loved it, perhaps even of those who disdained it and those who wished to alter it, and often those who found it anew in more recent time. Many of those who played a role in the creation of the manuscripts remain anonymous. Shadowy figures, whose work with quills, paintbrushes, and other tools of the trait are all that survive them. Sometimes they come into sharper focus. And so I think this is just a really fascinating book if you're interested in like the history of books and also kind of about how books are put together and made and learning about medieval history through what we know about medieval books and manuscripts that have survived. So it's just really, I think, like nice, you know, and there's I think a, there, there's stories in it that are like more intense, right, about like stories that haven't survived and how they might but overall, like, just reflecting on, like, the value of stories and how those stories are made and assembled in a time when, like, the making and assembly of stories was really, um, like, contained and 
physical in a way that like it kind of isn't now is really fascinating and kind of lovely. So I really like this one. I think it's really interesting. The Gilded Page, The Secret Lives of Medieval Manuscripts by Mary Wellesley. Oh, yeah. I was jealous that you picked that one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so then I was like, I'll pick my own kind of elaborate sounding book, which is this <laughs> next one. Um, this is The Last Emperor of Mexico, the dramatic story of the Habsburg Archduke who created a kingdom in the New World by Edward Shawcross. So I only knew about this because of Hark a Vagrant, the comic strip by Kate Beaton. Um, and otherwise, I feel like I never would have heard about it, which is that in the 1860s, the Emperor of France, <laughs> sorry, it just already sounds ridiculous, um, <laughs> Napoleon III was like, I'm going to send over, okay, so France and Spain and the United Kingdom invaded Mexico in 1861 because Mexico had said that they weren't going to pay their debts back uh, or they were going to suspend debt repayment. And so... After uh, they negotiated a bit, Spain and the UK withdrew, but then France, they then later realized, just wanted to conquer Mexico, which is weird. But in trying to like do this, uh, Emperor Napoleon III asked Maximilian and Carlotta, who were European, like, you know, Archduke, Archduchess, if that's a thing, to go there and become like Emperor of Mexico. And uh, replacing President Benito Juarez, who what? was uh, part of the Liberal Party. So, like, Benito Juarez had come in, like, a couple years earlier, and they were basically like, nope, we're going to push you out and replace you with this uh, European emperor. It's really <laughs> weird. <laughs> that's such a bad idea. So, the thing that's, like, if I, I highly recommend that you look up Kate Beaton and, like, Maximilian, because what she's, like, really into... North American history, particularly Canadian, because she's Canadian, but she also does stuff with, like, Mexican history. And she says in the regular world, Maximilian would be a bad guy, but you really want to like the fellow. <laughs> she said, as far as puppet rulers go, he may be in a club of his own for wanting to do a good job. <laughs> and it's just like, <laughs> he was trying hard, but also he was, you know, this puppet ruler installed by yeah. a completely foreign country taking over from a president who had been elected. So... He uh, had a sad end, but it's it's just a weird chapter in history, and this is a book about that chapter. So it is The Last Emperor of Mexico, the dramatic story of the Habsburg Archduke who created a kingdom in the New World by Edward Shawcross. That sounds really fascinating. It's weird. What a weird, like, especially like 1860s, you know, like that is a long time ago, but it doesn't feel... It doesn't feel you know, like that time period, something about that being like, this is the time when France was like, ah, oh, yes, let's take over Mexico. It's just. Well, like the Civil War was going on here. Yeah. So it's like Civil War, France sends an emperor to Mexico and we just don't hear about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Super weird. What a what a great, like weird piece of history story. I Yeah. Good pick. So my second pick is Concepcion, An Immigrant Family's Fortunes by Albert Samaha, which came out October 12th from Riverhead Books. And so this is a book by, or so the author is uh, the son of immigrants. And at the time of the book, he is sort of reaching the age in which his mother decided to immigrate to the United States as part of the first wave of non-Europeans who arrived after immigration quotas were relaxed in 1965. So his family came from the Philippines. And they in the Philippines, they had like a really comfortable life. But they decided to like upend their family and come to the United States because they felt like that was a better opportunity for their children. So um, his mother, you know, was really comfortable. 
His uncle was a guy named Spanky, who is a rising pop star in Manila. But then when they moved to the United States, they came to the United States, they he starts working as a luggage handler at San Francisco Airport. And so it's about like the setbacks and like tough experiences that that generation of immigrants coming after 1965 experienced and how the idea of like American prosperity and American wealth and the American dream remain like consistently out of reach for them. And so then he's trying to sort of grapple with, like, as a child of immigrants, like, how can he live up to the, like, the sacrifice that his family made to come here so that he could have opportunity. And so he and his cousins are sort of grappling with that. So the author is a journalist, an investigative journalist. And so he sort of is turning his investigative journalist eye on his family's history and trying to understand, like, all of the political and geographical forces that were affecting his family in the Philippines and why they would decide to come to the United States and, like, what that means. And it's really, really fascinating. Um, he opens with kind of a story about his mother, who is this very devout Catholic, very religious, who hated uh, the dictator Fernand Marcos. But then as she's lived in the United States, has become a supporter and believer of like QAnon conspiracy theories and is a huge Trump supporter. And so he's writing about like how that is affecting him and like how he doesn't understand some of like how that is happening. And like they have this really close relationship, but also like have these really fundamental differences in how they see the world. And so then the story is about how she like almost is taken or she is taken in by a scammer who's trying to like get her money and tempting her with these promises of real estate fortune and how that just like isn't true and so like and then connecting that experience to sort of these legacies of immigrant parents leaving and their pursuit of better opportunities for them and their families it's just it's really fascinating so he has it's an interesting like writing style too like parts of it are very philosophical and sort of historical and like setting these really big contexts about geopolitical forces and other parts are these very funny personal stories about his family and his life and growing up and so that balance is interesting and sort of a little jarring as I've been reading it but it's also it's it's nice because you get these it feels like you're sort of getting a big history kind of knowledgeable educational kind of thing but then also these really great memoir type stories so i like that balance as i've gotten used to it so i just think this one's really fascinating so that is concepcion and immigrant families fortunes by albert samaha oh that sounds really good yeah it is it is it's really good yeah i really i like how it's like combining the three things with like spanish colonialism american intervention japanese like you know what i mean mm-hmm, like i feel like yeah. you don't get as much of like that much of a discussion of like all the different forces combined yeah there's a lot of stuff happening in the philippines and like it affected them and those those pieces are really important to understanding that story my goodness Okay, I have a total pivot. Yes, love it. Next one, which which is uh, Best Wishes, Warmest Regards, The Story of Schitt's Creek by Daniel Levy and Eugene Levy. I was not fortunate enough to get a review copy of this one, but I really wanted to talk about it because thinking about Schitt's Creek just makes me happy. And this also seems like a really good uh, Christmas gift for anyone you know Mm -hmm. who likes Schitt's Creek, which should be most people. Agreed. It's one of those, like, coffee table type books, but, and I usually kind of ignore those to a certain degree because we have a coffee table, but I don't have books on it. (laughs) But it looks really, really cool because it's so, like, I feel like the benefit of a coffee table book, right, is that it's, like, image focused. And Mm -hmm. for Schitt's Creek, there are so many good visuals that Mm -hmm. it's really neat to, like, have the space to kind of 
like really get into the details of those. So what it does is it has character profiles on the cast and like all the people who populate the town, like Twyla. I miss Twyla. And then um, major moments from Moira's endorsement of Herb Ertlinger Winery. (laughs) 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 Oh my gosh. And then, oh, my favorite thing that I'm so excited about is the complete illustrated catalog of David's sweaters. Oh God. And Moira's wigs. That's amazing. I know. I was just, that was very exciting. And then Moira's vocabulary, which is, oh, so good. And just, sorry, not just, like, go into, like, ecstatics about Schitt's Creek, (laughs) but I do really miss it. And then Alexis' adventures, and then there are behind-the-scenes moment from Dan, Eugene Levy, and the cast. And I just, ugh, what what a wonderful show. Mm -hmm. That's one of those shows where, like, I watched season one, and it took me a long time to get through because the characters haven't started growing yet, right? They're just kind Mm -hmm. of, like, almost caricatures. And then... Over, I think, season two or three, I was like, oh, my gosh, because they really show a lot of growth. And it's but it's like slow and organic. And it's uh, so well done. So even if you haven't watched this Greek or you watched the first few episodes and you were like not into it, I would keep going. Agreed. Because it just gets so good. So, again, that is Best Wishes, Warmest Regards, The Story of Schitt's Greek by Daniel and Eugene Levy. Excellent. I'm really glad you mentioned that. That sounds really fun. And I, I agree. Like, I don't have any coffee table books because, like, there's always, like, junk on my coffee table. But maybe I should buy some and then there would be less junk there. I don't – that's probably not true, but – Who knows? I can aspire to be someone with coffee table books, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, my last pick – it's another nerd book, I think, but it is really great. Uh, it's called The Genome Defense Inside the Epic Legal Battle to Determine Who Owns Your DNA by Jorge Contreras. And it came out – or it's coming out October 26th from Algonquin. And so this is a book about a 2013 case that came to the Supreme Court um, where the ACLU sued a private company over patents that this company had over the human genome. And so it is about that legal battle is sort of the the thing that the story hangs on. But it's also about this like larger question of can you patent human genes? And if you can, what does that mean? The author is an expert on human genetics law, and so he has been, you know, investigating this case through his various work in um, private com- private firms and then uh, as a professor at a couple of different universities. And so he um, gives, like, the whole inside story of this case from the science expert at the ACLU who first kind of pitched it as a, like, maybe this is an issue that the ACLU should look into, to the attorney at the ACLU who was like, yeah, I think that the ACLU should take on patent law in this particular situation. And then all of the work that they did to try and find a case that would make sense and um, the ways that science and patent law come together when we're talking about kind of these issues, then just like follows the case from sort of their moment of like, it is bananas that people can patent human genes to like actually taking it to the Supreme Court and what happens there. And so for a book that is about like a legal case about patent law, it is such good storytelling. Um, he has this like really amazing way of like setting the stage and like giving you background about the people who are pursuing this lawsuit and kind of leading the charge within the ACLU. Just a really great sense of sort of their astonishment that this is even a thing that they have to like think about litigating and um, all of the people who it affects. And so I think the back part of the book makes a comparison to The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Skloot, which is a huge comparison. But I feel like it's pretty accurate because a lot of what he's doing is trying to like humanize these stories. So there's a, a anecdote early about of some families who donated 
genetic material so that scientists could do some research for a genetic test that would try and identify a hereditary disease. And so these families pushed to have this research done. And then many clinics started offering this as a genetic test for free. And then the hospital or the research group that uh, developed the test was like, oh, no, no, we've patented that. So in order for you to offer this free test, you have to pay us. And then sort of like how unfair that whole thing was. And so that's an early lawsuit around patent law and genetics that he talks about. And really humanizes like why this matters and why it's important that we try to like make sure that these things don't become part of like capitalism, basically. And it's got really great and clear explanations of science and legal issues, which I think is really tricky. Both of those can be very dry, but he does a great job of sort of setting that and explaining what's going on. Lots of like funny, like nerd humor. So it's like a business law story, but like lots of human stuff too. And it's really, it's really interesting. I was bummed to put it down when I had to go read something else. So uh, really good. Uh, The Genome Defense, Inside the Epic Legal Battle to Determine Who Owns Your DNA by Jorge Contreras. That was a great pitch. Good. I am glad. I'm I'm just letting you know. (laughs) I'm jazzed about it. It's (laughs) it's real good. Um, All right. So this week, our weekly theme, I don't really think there's like a topical connection to it. It's just something that we've been wanting to talk about a while. And that is books by Arab women writers. Um, which I, we wanted to talk a little bit about, like, what that means before we get into our book picks. So um, Alice has some information. Yeah, we started getting more. I mean, obviously, we wanted to be precise because this is a nonfiction podcast. So if we can, we will. But I was going to talk about Guest House for Young Widows Among the Women of Isis by Azada Moveni. And I looked her up and she is Iranian, which, well, American-Iranian. But... I was checking out sort of like the definition under Arab identity, at least as defined by Wikipedia, and Iran is not part of that, which I was like, interesting. So we started being like, let's talk at the top about what this can be. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that it talks about is sort of like, how do you identify and how the Arab identity actually predates, like, I think a lot of people in the US might be like, oh, so it's like, very connected with Islam. And the Arab identity predates Islam, which I thought was fascinating. So it's kind Mm -hmm. of like this is its own thing. And then in terms of the current countries, there are 22 Arab countries that go from the Atlantic Ocean to the Arabian Sea and from the Mediterranean to the Horn of Africa and the Indian Ocean. Like it's huge. The spread is really, really big. It includes countries like Algeria and Djibouti and Egypt and Iraq, Palestine, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, uh, Tunisia. And it's just, I mean, it's it's very vast. So we are talking about authors who are occupying some of these countries or from there have like roots there or identify in some way because they're actually like you can do it linguistically, like with speaking Arabic by being um, from those countries or being born in those countries. Well, I guess that's the same thing as being from, but like moving there. Mm-hmm. And they're just, there's a lot of ways to kind of, that it's it's defined under. The, the categories that they have online are racial, ethnic, national, religious, cultural, linguistic, and political, which, you know, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Do you have any contribution to that? Yeah. So one of the books I'm going to talk about has a footnote early in it, like also talking about the idea of Arab identity. 
And so it's in reference to um, she's talking about a, a woman who is a citizen journalist on Facebook, and she she writes it's important to note that she was Kurdish, not Arab descent, though she was Syrian by nationality. While this book centers on women of Arab ancestry, many women of the broader Middle East share the exact same social, political, and cultural challenges. That said, by using the catch-all term Arab, we by no means aim to present the 22 countries that comprise the Arab world as monolithic nor do we want to depict the experiences of its more than 400 million people as one and the same. On the contrary, we wish to illustrate just how rich and wide-ranging this area of the world is. Our decision to categorize the authors in this book as Arab is in part due to their shared linguistic heritage, although it's worth acknowledging that even then, across the Arab world, dozens of dialects are spoken. So I just thought it was interesting. We picked it, and then as we kind of dug into trying to decide what books to recommend, realized like it's uh, both like more specific and more complicated term than I originally thought. And so... Just something to keep in mind as we're talking about them and, and identifying writers in certain ways. I feel like that's always the case when you start diving into any topic. You're like, oh, mm-hmm. this this is much more complicated than I first thought. Yes. Agreed. Because we we tend to kind of just – I feel like just like give the amount of space that we feel like we have at the moment for like, you know, oh, okay, so I've got that. And then you look back into it more deeply and you're like, oh, I didn't, I didn't got that like mm-hmm. at all. So, yeah, no, so we're excited to be able to talk a little more specifically about, well, particularly uh, Arab women writers, of which Mm -hmm. we've seen a fair number of those books in the last few years, which is exciting, and so to just be able to highlight them. Yes, exactly. So um, the first pick and the one that that footnote is from is called Our Women on the Ground, Essays by Arab Women Reporting from the Arab World, edited by Zahara Hankir. Uh, this is a 2019 anthology of essays by or essays from Arab women journalists specifically about like their personal and professional experiences being female reporters in the Arab world. And so uh, this is a lot of where the, the inspiration for doing this collection came from, the author writes in the intro, is about Arab Spring and some of those like pushes for changes in democracy and all of that in those areas. And so women journalists were doing a ton of uh, first person reporting, both as like citizen journalists and also as journalists attached to important media or like major media organizations. And so she wanted to grab their stories and share them and try to give a perspective on the different ways that being an Arab female reporter in their world can be experienced. Um, And so this book collects um, a bunch of different essays from a bunch of different journalists all about what it is like to be a female journalist from the Middle East. And so um, they get into some of the like both benefits of being a female journalist in the sense that it sometimes allows them to have access to people and stories that male journalists would not have access to, um, but also some of the challenges about their personal safety, about people, men particularly, like not wanting to speak with them or access to people in power that they may not have. And so it's really interesting reading about the ways that they balance some of those things. It's interesting reading different essays about like how they may sometimes get pigeonholed into doing stories just about like other women and children and be pushed away from doing some of the more like hard-hitting journalism for various reasons um you know people who have pushed through some of those barriers to do it and what that has been like and they're just they're really they're really fascinating and they they come at them from different perspectives and i love that it's just like their stories um and that we're capturing like the experiences of women doing some like really incredible and dangerous and challenging work that should be acknowledged and i think that's really cool so uh there's 19 journalists in this collection that i think are just great so our women on the ground essays by arab women reporting from the arab world edited by zahara hunkier yeah that one just looks so good. <laughs> like, and it came out really recently, right? Yeah, 2019. 
Yeah, dang. We've been doing this podcast for a while. I, I would have been like, in the last eight months, right? <laughs> anyway, my first pick is – okay, let's just get into the title. It is A Most Masculine State, Gender, Politics, and Religion in Saudi Arabia by Madawi al-Rashid. Uh, Madawi al-Rashid is uh, – she was born in Paris, grew up in Saudi Arabia. Her father was Saudi and her mother's Lebanese. And she ended up basically – going into exile and was a visiting professor at the London School of Economics for a while and is just very impressive <laughs> in general. So I watched part of a, a lecture that she gave and I was like, wow. Um, so this book is definitely more on the academic side, which sometimes I know some of you nerds out there just really want like a nice academic read sometimes where it's just like, I know that mm -hmm. this has been verified. This is scholarly. Do you know what I mean? Just like mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. feeling confident in the background of the book. So what this is um, a most masculine state, right? So she says that women in Saudi Arabia are, are either described frequently as victims of patriarchal religion and society or uh, successful survivors of discrimination imposed on them by others. So in this, she is looking at the historical, political, and religious forces that have delayed and thwarted, I love that word, their emancipation. And it looks how through the state and its religious nationalism, women have become hostage to contradictory political projects that on the one hand demand female piety and on the other encourage modernity. So one of the things she talks about at the beginning, which is a little like I'm also – my next book, spoilers, talking about this. She talks about how everyone focuses on the Saudi previous ban on women driving. And that was kind of like the attention from the world was on that. But she was like, there are a lot of other things that we need to be looking at. But like, you know, this is what's like drawn everyone's attention. And so she gets into those other things. I found it despite – I know the, the word academic can be a little scary. And it is to me too sometimes because I'm like, I just need something easier. I found it really readable for being in that genre – and just like, again, just like settling that confidence of like, I am getting some good information right now, mm -hmm. which is just really uh, comforting <laughs> in a way. Yeah. She uh, looks at state documents, media sources. She interviews women from across Saudi society. And I, it's the book I was most excited about, I think, that I found in my, my research for this this episode. Mm -hmm. So that is, again, A Most Masculine State, Gender, Politics, and Religion in Saudi Arabia by Madawi al-Rashid. That is a really fascinating pick. And I think with like unintentionally is a very interesting pairing with the next book I want to talk about because they're coming at the very same topic, but mine is not coming at it from a the same kind of academic lens. But I think like those two perspectives together could be really fascinating. So uh, the book is called Headscards and Hymens, Why the Middle East Needs a Sexual Revolution by Mona Altahawi, um, which is a 2015 book exploring misogyny in the Arab world. And exactly the same thing, how gender politics and religion have come together to create this deep misogynistic society and what people can do about it. So she's an Egyptian-American journalist and activist. And so she kind of, I think, maybe got her big, like, became kind of an expert or, like, a known person speaking about this in 2012 after she published an article in Foreign Policy called Why Do They Hate Us, which is about why is there so much misogyny in the Middle East and what can women do about it? And she, in doing that, sort of made clear that misogyny in the Arab world is a really important issue and that it is something that the public 
wants to talk about in different ways. And so this book is uh, an extension of that article, and she pushes the story further um, by also like drawing on her years as an activist in uh, the Middle East and explains kind of how women are, as part of like the revolutions that are happening, women are sort of having to fight on two different fronts, both with men against oppressive regimes and then against like this whole political and economic system that treats women as second-class citizens across the Arab world. And so she is, is writing about the like toxic mix of culture and religion that is causing some of this and like what can happen to do about it. And so one of the things I really liked in her early essay is she sort of talks about like the criticism she experienced after she published that um, article and how like people could use it to sort of say like, oh, the Middle East is full of terrible people and all of that, but how that that isn't really what she wanted to say and that her position as a person inside that culture allows her to speak about it effectively. And so there's an, a whole paragraph I wanted, I'm reading a bunch of books, but I, I really liked this paragraph and I thought it sort of gave context for like what this book is about. Um, and so she writes, I insist on the right to critique both my culture and my faith in ways that I would reject from an outsider. I expose misogyny in my part of the world to connect the feminist struggle in the Middle East and North Africa to the global one. Misogyny has not been completely wiped out anywhere. Rather, it resides on a spectrum, and our best hope for eradicating it globally is for each of us to expose and to fight against local versions of it, in the understanding that by doing so, we advance the global struggle. When I travel and give lectures abroad, I'm asked how to best help women in my part of the world. I say, help your own communities women fight misogyny. By doing so, you help the global struggle against the hatred of women. I've written this book in that spirit. It is my flag, my manifesto that exposes misogyny in my part of the world as a way to connect to that global feminist struggle. These countries that have managed to reduce their levels of misogyny were not created more respectful of women's rights. Rather, women in these countries have fought hard to expose systemic violations and to liberate women from them. So her whole book is kind of in that vein, and I think it's really, it's really powerful and really well-spoken or well-written and just really, like gives a personal look and a, a, a well-informed but personal look at some of the issues that the book you mentioned talks about in a more academic sense. So that is Headscarves and Hymens, Why the Middle East Needs a Sexual Revolution by Mona El-Tahawi. Okay, I've got a, a tripartite pairing. Ah, yes, great. I don't great. think you can say pairing for three. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> we try, can. Try pairing. Um, because I wanted to, I wanted to focus on two Saudi books, uh, just mm-hmm. because I thought this would be, it's kind of, this is more of a, a one person narrative, right? So it's like you get mm-hmm. the personal and then you have like the active. So that was my thinking. But then if we also mm-hmm. include yours, uh, we have, we cover everything. I feel like. So okay. much. So this is Daring to Drive, A Saudi Woman's Awakening by Manal Al-Sharif. This is very like, this is my story. And just as a warning, it does deal with forced circumcision on uh, forced female circumcision. And so if that if that bothers you very much, just be aware. So this is she grew up in Mecca, which is in Saudi Arabia, and became, uh, as many of us did <laughs> in her adolescence, a religious radical, which was uh, involved melting her brother's boy band cassettes in the oven. Because music was haram, which it's haram is like forbidden by Islamic law. Um, this very much reminded me of my teen years with ripping <laughs> up my X Files things. Um, but anyway, so she ended up becoming a computer security engineer and uh, lived in this like compound that looked like suburban America, but was also dealing with things like you have to because because women weren't allowed to drive you had to only get around via like hired drivers and taxis 
which is really expensive. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, unless, you know, you have, like, a family member to drive you around. But even then, they're not always going to be available. Like, it's extremely limiting. So she ended up, you know, just driving herself. And in 2011, she was arrested and imprisoned for driving while female. Oof. I just can't. <laughs> I mean, I know that I just talked about how in the other book she was like, people only focus on this, but it's so like, oh my gosh. And it's mm-hmm. it's changed. But anyway, so, but partially because of things like this, right? They had these protests, which were in part, uh, you know, she was the the first sort of, at least in the, the US, having this type of memoir come out. Her brother had to chaperone her on a business trip and she was called um, a slut for chatting with male colleagues, like, at work. I just, like, I can't. Anyway, so this is, like, her story about what happened, like, in her youth and then growing up and then to her arrest and what – how she she became an, an accidental activist. Is what she did not mm-hmm. mean to be doing it. She just was, like, driving and then she got arrested. So, um, again, if you're interested in more of a personal perspective or would like to do this tri-pairing that – everyone's talking about, then I would recommend this. It is Daring to Drive, A Saudi Woman's Awakening by Manal Al-Sharif. Awesome. Yeah, that is a great pick. I Yeah, I've seen that one several times and it looks really fascinating. Yeah, so I think those are there's obviously like many, many, many books by Arab women writers. Those are just a few that we have seen and would uh, recommend, but we'd love to hear, I think, more recommendations too, since uh, a lot of different things being covered. There's also a lot of fiction, which obviously we were not able to cover here, but you can find very easily. Yes, absolutely. Uh, And so with that, we will wrap up as we normally do by talking about the books we are reading uh, right now at this very moment. So um, one of the books that I am in the middle of right now is Disability Visibility, First Person Stories from the 21st Century by Alice Wong. Uh, And this is a collection of essays um, by... Uh, people with disabilities. So one in five people in the United States live with a disability. And so this book is about bringing visibility to those experiences. So it's just a bunch of different essays by different people, you know, just different approaches to doing that. And it's, they're, they're really eye-opening and just really thought-provoking. So this was a pick for my work book club that I, I didn't finish in time for the book club meeting because I never do, but I'm going to I'm going to finish it because it was really good. So Disability Visibility, First Person Stories from the 21st Century by Alice Wong. That book is so good. Like, it's so good. Have you read it? Yeah, it was for whenever it came out. I think I talked about it on the podcast, but oh, it's yeah. just like, oh, it's one of those books I'm really glad came out. Um, It was for the 30th? Yeah, 30th, yeah, 30th anniversary 30th of the ADA. Did you just say that? <laughs> I was I was agreeing with you. Yes. Okay, cool. <laughs> I'm telling you, brain fog. I don't think we talked about it at the top of the podcast, but Mm -hmm, I have it. mm -hmm. I literally went to the wrong Ethiopian restaurant last night when trying to meet up with my friend. (laughs) It's fine. Anyway, okay. I am currently reading – oh, no, I'm not currently. I just finished. She Came to Slay, The Life and Times of Harriet Tubman by Eric Armstrong Dunbar. Uh, We've talked about Never Caught, uh, about Own a Judge by Eric Armstrong Dunbar. And She Came to Slay is a similarly short – biography of Harriet Tubman and it's it's really good. I love a short biography. I feel like we should do all of them that way. Um she does a great job of kind of summing up her life. I had a question about one thing that she said about Frederick Douglass and suffragists. <laughs> which obviously. <laughs> yeah. Well just because I read an entire book about that specific mm-hmm. thing and this is like a throwaway line and I was like I don't know if that's true, but everything else, very, very good. The only issue I have with it is the title, 
which mm-hmm. I wonder if that was like her publisher's decision because she came mm-hmm. to slay is such a like rooted in a moment in time. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the Emperor's New Groove where it's like, I love that movie, <laughs> but did we need that title? I don't know. <laughs> Similarly, like the way that like they have tight like sub chapters that are like boss lady and but then the writing is extremely just like straightforward and you know, it's not written in this like kind of a slangy way. So mm-hmm. But I loved the writing. Like, she does it in a very, like, here are the facts and here's the story. And, um, yeah, so I, I kind of wish they had a different title. But the art is really beautiful. And I really liked the book. So she came to slay Life and Times of Harriet Tubman by Erica Armstrong Dunbar. And with that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time. And Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink. And if you have a few minutes, we would love it if you take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, That helps people find us more easily. And then you can follow us there so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. Uh, With that, I'm Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast.